Music team, thank you so much for leading us. I must say to you, the most meaningful and thrilling worship services I've really experienced in my life, at least since I came to Christ as a teenager, have been here. And I am very glad to share them with you. Can you imagine a world and place where Jesus gets exactly what he deserves in worship? And that, this is a sample of that. What a joy. Let me invite your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And uh, as you're turning there, I, uh, as I think of this text, I'm reminded of the fellow who went camping uh, one day. For some of you may not understand camping. To you, camping is a Motel 6 with a black and white television. But he uh, did a little hiking and tent camped while there. And he came back and a friend asked him how he enjoyed camping. He said, I didn't like it a bit. He said, how come? He said, I came across a black snake. And he said, well, they're not dangerous. He said, well, when they make you jump off a 50-foot cliff, they are. <laughs> this past week, I was running along Cook's Trail between uh, the Sandy Creek Nature Center and the Sandy Creek Park, and I came upon a bridge across uh, the creek there, and as I approached the steps, I saw a light brown snake there. Uh, I frightened him, and he improved my prayer life, but I would have appreciated... <laughs> I would have appreciated a little bit of warning. Wouldn't it be very useful and helpful to you and me if we could have some warning before events like this? I just imagine if your cell phone gave you a day or two warning that you're about to lose your cell phone. You could prepare for it. And what if your body would give you some kind of real clear signal or warning or you, you got a warning in the mail or an email at least that you're about to have a heart attack? or your body was to develop a cancer of some kind. Wouldn't it be great to have some kind of warning? Well, it's very difficult to have warnings like this in this life. Moses had something like that in mind as he's speaking to the children of Israel. Now, they've left Egypt. They're about to go into the Promised Land where they're going to have to initiate a conquest and an awful lot of military procedures and strategies and to take over the land that God had given them. Now, don't feel... Uh, too alarmed by that kind of military action in the Scripture. The Canaanites, whom they were going to defeat, were barbaric, and it's very hard to describe the barbarism over them, uh, with them. They regularly sacrificed their infant children and were terribly guilty of infanticide and had no moral qualms with that. And so they were terribly murderous all the way through culture and society. They would defeat their enemies, rip their skin off, and wallpaper their walls and their homes with it. They would bury their enemies under their floor. One of my professors in school said that may be inspiration for the country song, I'm, I'm walking the floor over you. <laughs> but this is the kind of life, and God applied widespread capital punishment to these cultures and society. The people had forfeited the land and the opportunity to live there and even life, and so Israel was to come. And they were to do what you find in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse number 10 and 11. We'll look at all 11 verses this morning, but I want to read for just a moment Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 and 11, where God commanded the people to warn the Canaanites before they attack and give them an opportunity for reconciliation. Beginning in verse 10, when you go near a city to fight against it. 
Then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be, if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. We are in a world in this day where God is lining up heavenly hosts to conquer the world in the name of His Son, Jesus. Jesus is going to split the eastern sky and take over. This world really belongs to Him, and the Father expects it to serve Him as a pure and clean palace and kingdom for Him and for His people and all of His subjects. We are in the era, however, before the king launches this assault. And you can read in detail about it from Revelation 6 to chapter 20. We are approaching the city and fortresses of this world called human lives and declaring the king is willing to make peace. You'll have to serve him and pay tribute to him, essentially give him your sins and life. But that is what we do before the king returns and launches this. This, in the scripture, is called the day of the Lord, sometimes referred to as that day or the last day. And it's really an era. And here, I've placed a definition for you. The day of the Lord consists of an era when God brings justice upon his traitors and cleanses the earth of evil to make it a suitable palace and kingdom for Jesus Christ to rule. It's precisely what he's going to do. Now, there is a large body of Old Testament information that contributes to this. I've listed just a few verses on the next slide. Um, if you'll look there, the, it is a major theme. But here's some Old Testament passages. And that is only a sampling of them. This is the dominating thought of the Old Testament along with a few others. But then there's some New Testament passages as well I want you to take note of. And that last is an extensive section of Scripture, Revelation 6 through 20. I remember having a friend when I was younger. Her name was Martha, and I, I don't know the circumstances or why, but it was a very natural segue. She opened up the book of Revelation and began to read of the assault of heaven against traitors and evil in the world. When Jesus comes to conquer the earth and cleanse it and make it a suitable palace for himself and his, his people. And I'll never forget that when she read Revelation, and I forget exactly what passage it was, she began to weep. It moved her. And that communicated to me, this is serious stuff. The Lord is intense and insistent of claiming the earth for His Son and purifying it. And aren't you glad? There will come a day when Jesus no longer has to endure evil. And Jesus no longer has to endure anything outside or contrary to His will. The Father wants that kind of world for His Son and He shall give it to Him. And so now the Lord is declaring to traitors and to all that are wicked and evil outside of His Son, before that day I am offering you peace and reconciliation on my terms. And you can have it if you will repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I, I want to clarify something here. I've got to give you a clarification. The Lord performs this work. We do not. We share the gospel and invite people to Christ. But it is the Lord that will launch this assault against the earth. 
Christians do not take up weaponry in order to advance the kingdom of God. We don't do that. We're not authorized. What we do, and the next slide will help us, we take these so-called weapons of love and of prayer and evangelism and declare the gospel to the world, if we can call those weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual. And this is important because the day of the Lord will be a very intense day where people will hide in holes and caves. Revelation even says they'll not be able to die. Um, It will be like Jerusalem's destruction. And Jesus made that clear. Sun will be darkened, the stars will fall, the heavens will be shaken. And then the Lord will cleanse the earth with fire. And then he will overthrow the earth, much like Sodom and Gomorrah. But Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, will look like a day in a McDonald's playland compared to this. And Revelation 6 through 20 make it very clear. But what I want to insist on, in case some of this language makes you nervous, in this era, we simply approach the city and offer the gospel of peace and the terms of reconciliation with the king. Any kind of violence, any kind of war, the Lord Himself will initiate that. We don't do that. In other words, the Lord has given us minimal weapons. If you'll think about Andy Taylor and the Andy Griffith show, he gave Barney what? One bullet. Well, we don't hardly even have that. We have love and we have prayer and we have evangelism. Now, speaking of evangelism, some are profoundly nervous about that. But I want to say about the day of the Lord, the extent to which we include the day of the Lord in our message, to that extent we introduce people to reality. To the extent that we eliminate it from our message, to that extent we detach people from reality. In other words, we have to have a fundamental element of our soul and life that is thinking of that day. In other words, we can't live and we really aren't wise to spend and make decisions without that day in mind. That is the ultimate day. And really, that is why the whole Bible is written. And and so for that reason, we communicate the gospel. Now, I did have one ethicist that has appeared in the media tell me one time, um, you know, we don't use that kind of language in the media when we speak as Christians. And I said, well, why not? The prophets did, and Jesus did. He said it doesn't play well out there, and it will backfire on us in elections. And I thought, excuse me, we've got bigger issues here than elections. Amen. We have eternity to consider. And frankly, the only election that ever mattered was the day Jesus rose from the dead and the Father voted for Him. That's the election that matters. Now, I want us to be responsible Christian citizens, vote according to the Word and the will of God. I'm all for that. But I have to tell you, this is merely a speck compared to eternity. And our friends and neighbors, and we are going to be dead a lot longer than we're going to be alive. What really matters is what happens on the other side. That is where our attention has got to be cast and we've got to give ourselves for that day. I, I, I'm not really interested in, in impressing media outlets and others. I, I don't mean we're to be foolish and doesn't mean we're to be obnoxious. We aren't to have the personality of a chainsaw. I understand that. But this is the throbbing, thriving 
pulsating, boiling message of the Word of God. There's a great day coming. Jesus will cleanse the earth and the Father will exalt Him and set Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And all the kingdoms of the world shall be the kingdoms of our Lord in Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Repent and believe the gospel in this era as the Father offers you opportunity. One day He will withdraw it. That's what we call evangelism. Now some people are rather nervous about that, but let me tell you what evangelism is not. To begin with, evangelism in the first place is not debate. In the next place, evangelism is not knowing at all. You don't have to have all the answers. And rarely, I don't hardly ever get questions when I share the gospel. In fact, if you've known Jesus for any amount of time, um, you know enough to tell someone. Just tell them what you did. Then it's not arguing or tricking someone into the faith. I've helped people prepare their testimonies. In fact, that was part of my job responsibilities every day for three entire summers. And I've never heard anyone say, well, I became a Christian one day because I lost a debate with a Christian in an argument. I've never heard that. So there's no need to do that. If you don't like debate, if you're not a know-it-all, if you don't like arguing or tricking people into the faith, well, fine. You, You don't have to do that. In the next place, evangelism is not a theological exposition. There may be some of that involved in it, but the gospel is a simple message. It is. Christ is the Son of God. He paid our penalty for our sins on the cross. The Father was pleased with that, raised Him from the dead. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what it is. And it's not merely a professional or vocational effort. Most of the witnessing you find taking place in the Scripture did not happen with ordained people at all. Let's go to the next slide. Let me tell you, Well, and it's not merely setting a good example. A good example is good, but that's not evangelism. Let me tell you what evangelism is. Evangelism is, uh, first, speaking. Sharing the gospel, speaking. The good news of Christ to non-Christians. Not to one another that know the Lord, although that's a good thing to do, but to non-Christians. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you have all the help of heaven to share the good news. In order to invite them to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. That's what evangelism is. And follow Him as Lord. That's simply all that it is. So share the gospel, invite them to trust Christ and follow Him as Lord. That's what evangelism happens to be. Now, the question I want to look at today is, how do we then speak to this world under these circumstances? Well, there are a couple of things that surface from the text. One, tell them with trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. It will be almost impossible to share the good news with others unless you first trust in the Lord. You say to yourself, well, I'm weak. I have to tell you, God is strong. And so your weakness does not intimidate or hinder Him. I don't know everything. That's okay. He does. He can work all of that out. I'm, I'm not a very good speaker. You don't have to be. Or it's not my thing. It's not my personality. I've got news for you. It's none of our personalities. It's none of our thing. Well, I'm introverted, and you're extroverted. Hey, I, I, I will tell you, the two best witnesses I know are introverts. My school president and Dr. Roy Fish, both very shy, the two most effective witnesses I know. I'm an extrovert, but when I get nervous, I don't witness. I cover things with chatter, hoping that the conversation will end. And though I've taught it, and though I've advocated it for a long time, I still get nervous and tore up before I share the gospel. That's what I do. Well, this is something of what we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 20. 
Um, he says in verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so it shall be when you're on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart be faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified before, because of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now look at this beginning in verse number 5. This is the extent to which they trust the Lord. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, What man is there who's built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. Well, there'd be some of the officers and the soldiers, foot soldiers in the army who have just built a home right before this battle and they've not had the chance to dedicate it to the Lord. Well, let's lop them off and reduce the size of our army so you can go back and do that. Now, I have to tell you, that is not policy and procedure in the United States military. <laughs> well, let's go on. There's more. It doesn't stop there. Verse 6. Also, what man is there who's planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. So he's planted a vineyard. He's not harvested it. He's not enjoyed it. Well, let's lop off all of those and let them go and return to their home. So let's reduce the size of our army even more. Then verse 7, what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Betrothal was a legal arrangement that was more serious than engagement, but not quite marriage. And to get out of it, there actually had to be a legal divorce. Well, he's been betrothed. He would build a room onto his father's house and come and receive her to himself that where he was, she might be also. Well, this has not happened yet in this young man's life. And so Moses, the Lord through Moses, lops off all those young men and says, go make your wife happy. Deuteronomy 24 elaborates on that, in fact. And so you've lopped off all of those who've built a home and not dedicated it. You've lopped off all those soldiers. You've lopped off the soldiers who have planted a vineyard and have not eaten of it. And then now you're lopping off men that are betrothed and yet have not married their wives. And then verse 8, the officers shall speak further to the people. What man is there? Now, this is going to be a very large group. I can imagine the previous three groups are rather small. But look, can you imagine how large this next group is? The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Well, who isn't that before a battle? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart also. So what the Lord has done here is that He has made legal and policy provision to reduce the size of this army. And then He starts this entire speech off with, Do not be afraid. Do you know why? Because God is involved in every one of these acts. And He's involved when you share the good news with others. God goes with you. God, His movement is necessarily forward. He does not know it, uh, retreat. He does not know defeat. God moves onward and upward, and God moves forward for might, for glory, for conquest, for victory. That's what God does. And so I'm looking at a 
worship center full of people that are probably about a quarter inch away from being effective, not because they're skilled, not because of their personalities, not even because of their training, but because God is who He is. And you can be more effective than you ever dreamed. And so, instead of looking at our task and complaining to God about how big it is, I suggest you look at uh, your task and tell it how big your God is. God can do it. So trust in the Lord. But there's the second thing. And that is, tell with offers of peace. Verses 10 and 11 help us with that. And, and there are several things about this peace, this reconciliation, the king wants to establish between him and the world that will help us here. One, tell the meaning of peace. The word here is the famous word, the Hebrew word, shalom. Sometimes the word or city name Salem in the United States derive from that. Shalom is complete, peaceful, whole, blissful restoration. And God intends to restore all things as they were in the garden. In fact, if you'll read the last two chapters of the Bible and compare them with the first two chapters of the Bible, you're going to see remarkable similarities between the two. Because what you will find by reading the last two chapters of the Bible is that God has magnified and exalted what has taken place in the first two chapters of the Bible. Friend, I've got good news for you. When Jesus Christ returns, Eden is coming with him. And he shall restore it all and magnify and make it permanent in every conceivable way at Jesus' second coming. That will be shalom. That will be remarkable, boundless peace. We will have no, no more need for law enforcement. There won't be any criminals to chase. No more legal system or judicial system. No more cases to try. There will be no more pharmacies. No more sicknesses in the body. No more county lockups, no more jail cells, no more red lights on the streets, no more cursing, no more profanity, nothing but praise and honor and service to Jesus Christ. In other words, Eden shall be magnified, restored, and made permanent because Jesus will reign as king. Don't you want to go? Now the Bible says that peace actually begins when you receive Christ as Savior. God begins to plant Eden in your heart and soul, and He expands that throughout your entire life while you're on this earth. And so the Bible says in Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those things that bother you and capture your attention and make you shudder that you've done in the past, God can cancel those things, wipe them away, and He's willing, if you'll repent and believe the gospel, to never hold those against you Again, we can have peace, and the peace is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that, that's an allusion to his death on the cross. Do you know what happened there? Well, I know you know the details, but do you know the meaning? When Jesus was there, the Father laid my sin on him and yours. And Christ suffered the death sentence against our sin. In other words, here's what happened. The Father looked at me as sinful as I was and looked at Jesus as pure as He was and chose me over Jesus. And He chose you over Jesus. He chose to give you the bliss, the blessing, and credit for Jesus' obedience. He inputted that into you, to your account. 
He credited all that Jesus deserved because of his purity and holiness and obedience. He credited that to your account. It's available to you. Can you imagine how loved Jesus is? Can you imagine how glorified Jesus is? The Father is willing to transfer that to your account. And then how guilty you and I are. He transferred that to Jesus' account and that's why the cross is as it is. So the Father saw you and me in the world as sinful as we are and Jesus as pure and lovely and the darling of heaven as He is and chose us and rejected Him. That's the price of peace and Jesus paid for it. He paid it all. That's the meaning of peace. Then there's a response. Our response to peace. And that is, in verse 11, he says here, it shall be if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, they can have it. So you accept this, you embrace this with your whole heart, and you open yourself completely to him. They would open the gates of the city and let the Israelites come in and do whatever it is they felt like they needed to do to restore the city to the will of God. And that's what you do. You say, Lord, here's my city with all of its goals and dreams and aspirations, and it is wicked before you. It's worthy of your judgment, but I'm opening the gates of my city, and you can come in and take over. It now belongs to you. Now, isn't that a response for the whole world? Why is it that God would make our response consist of that? John 1.12 says, To as many as received Him gave Him the right to become the children of God, even to those that believe on His name. Now why would God make the response so simple? Have you ever contemplated that? Why would God do that for the whole earth? What if God had said, if you give a certain amount of money to my causes, you can get in. Well, very few people on all the earth could ever come because most people live in the world on less than $2 a day. And so you'd have to exclude nearly half the earth today. Not to mention previous centuries and millenniums. What if God said, well, if you have a certain look, we're done. What if God said you have to obey all 637 Old Testament laws? Well, I don't even know them all. God did not establish the standard that high. God took the cookies off the top shelf and put them on the bottom shelf where everyone can get them. In other words, God commanded a response from the earth to His offer of peace that everyone can meet, even you. And the people that you're praying for and the people of the earth, everyone that you know, everyone that you see can turn to Him. And that expresses the pulsating, desirous love of God for the whole world. And so when you meet someone, a stranger or friend or family member, you're looking at someone who is dearly beloved of God. Tell the response. Then tell the extent. Verse 11, It shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under rule. All the people. That is God's interest 
All the people. All the people. Now, there are two categories of people in the earth, C.S. Lewis said. There are some whose future and eternity is such that if you saw what they're going to be one day, you would be tempted to venerate them and to worship them like John did angels in Revelation. I mean, we shouldn't do that, but their future is so full of splendor and majesty and glory. What God is going to make of them, you would be tempted to do so. On the other hand, there are people whose future and eternity is such that it looks like that comes out of one of your nightmares. It is gross and horrifying and heartbreaking. And so every one of our interactions with them must be guided by that realization. And in every encounter that we have with people, we are helping them along to one destiny or the other. We're either helping them towards a destiny of glory and joy and outrageous majesty that they will share with the Lord, or we are hindering them and helping them along, if I can put it that way, to something that it resembles your worst nightmare or worse. So every one of our interactions has got to be guided by that principle. And he goes on to say, there is no such thing as an ordinary person. There is no such thing as a mere mortal. Everyone is eternal. And because God wants them all, we've got to be very particular and careful how we influence them all. So let me ask you something. Do you know someone who is enthusiastic? That person needs your love and your word, your testimony. Do you know someone who is shy and introverted? That person needs your word and love and testimony. Do do you know someone who is overlooked? That person needs your love and your word. Do you know someone who is popular? That person needs your love and your word. Do you know someone who is young? That person needs your love and your word. Do you know someone who is old? Do you, that person needs your love and your word. Someone who is poor or someone who is wealthy. That person needs your love and your word. Do you know someone who excels in school or someone who fails? Do you know a man? Do you know a woman? Do you know anyone who is still breathing? And if you do, there you find someone God wants to save and they need your love. And they need your word. That's the extent. And so our witness and our work has got to extend as far as the love of God. It must resemble that. It must extend to them. So tell the extent of peace. But then tell the price of peace. He says here in verse 11, what I believe is surprisingly to many people one of the most gracious things God has ever done for anyone. He says, if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who were found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. This is formal language for an ancient treaty. There'll be a treaty or a covenant of peace established. They will come under that. And in serving Israel, they would serve the Lord. I say that this is a gracious thing, although some people are repulsed by such language. 
You mean I serve Christ? I need to let you know. You come to Jesus Christ and He will insist on being Lord. And He's not coming off that throne for anyone. You embrace Christ as Lord and He will come into your life and He will begin to change you. And He will begin to conform you to Himself. He wants you to look like Him one day. And He will not leave you alone until you do. May I suggest to you, that is more than a duty. That is more than an obligation. Becoming like Jesus and serving Him and being put under tribute to Him is not something at this stage in my walk with the Lord that repels me. That is something that draws me. And I'm no more spiritual or committed than anyone else, but I've got to say to you, I've come to the place in my life where I look at God's commands as a gift. His Word is a measure of grace and goodness. Well, what do you mean? Well, look, if He wants us all to be like Jesus and obey Him like we do Jesus, imagine a world where everyone acts like Jesus. Now, now just think about that. If everyone repented, embraced the gospel, and by the power of the Holy Spirit was conformed to the image of Christ, think of all the things that would be eliminated. Think about the sorrows that you would miss and the staggering pain of life that would evaporate before your very eyes. If everyone obeyed the Lord by the power of the Spirit like Jesus. Just imagine. Imagine if in your family, all through the years, everyone had behaved like Jesus. Imagine if in your marriage, the two partners had behaved like Jesus. Can you imagine? I don't want to go John Lennon on you, but imagine. Imagine if everyone in Washington, imagine if everyone in Atlanta, imagine if everyone on 316 or I-85, or better, Atlanta Highway. Imagine if everyone loved like Jesus. Imagine if everyone spent like Jesus. Imagine if everyone worshipped and studied like Jesus. Imagine. Imagine. Beloved, I want to say to you, I agree thoroughly with John when he says in 1 John 5, 3, His commandments are not burdensome. David said in Psalms 119, Your word is my delight. It is a good thing to be under the Lord. I'm reminded of a... uh, young man who was a couple of years from high school graduation and he began dropping hints to his father about what he wanted for a graduation present. And he kept mentioning a certain model in year of Mustang. 
the small Ford muscle car. And his dad was real, real agreeable to it. And so graduation day came, and the father gave the son a box. And the son thought, well, that's kind of a big box for a set of keys. And when the boy opened the box, there was inside a Bible. And the young man was brokenhearted and angry. And he shut the box closed and threw it at his father's feet. And from that moment till his father's death, the two of them were estranged. The boy had hardly anything to do with his father. And he never reconciled before his father died. His mother called him one day after the funeral and asked the boy to come help clean out and go through his father's things. And he did. And when he was going through his father's things, he found that box with the Bible in it. And he was curious. He looked at it and looked at the presentation page and it said, congratulations on your high school graduation. Love, Dad. And he turned over a few pages and an envelope fell out. And he opened it and found a check in the amount of the Mustang in the Bible. Your greatest blessing is found in yielding yourself to the Lord on the terms outlined in His Word and bowing everything before Him. In fact, I'll tell you what Dr. McDowell used to tell us, and that is the greatest victory in our life is not money or fame or pleasure or self-gratification or many of the things that this world pursues with baitless breath. That's not our greatest victory. The greatest victory in our lives is Christ's victory over our lives. That is our greatest victory. And He appeals to you today for victory. We're standing at your city, and we are declaring to you, the King is coming. And one day he will loose the fateful lightning of his terrible Swiss sword. Our God is marching on. But now, while you have life and breath, he is offering peace with him. He's willing to cancel his court's case against you if you will accept and open. Do you believe? You need to let him have victory over your attitude. Romans 8, 7 says that the carnal mind is hostile towards God. And whether it is outright high-handed sin or mere deceptive neutrality towards Jesus, that is hostility towards God. Well, I won't make a decision today. Well, that's a decision. He calls now to surrender all. Let him have victory over your attitude. Let him have victory over your hope. 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone is our hope for peace with God. There's none other. And then let Him have victory over your response. Call a ceasefire with Him. Quit firing shots of neutrality towards Him. Forgetfulness. Self-rule. All of that. Set all of that aside. End hostilities and accept and open your city to Him. And invite Him to be Master and Lord. Father, we pray, oh God, that You would do that work in lives today and give all that's necessary for friends to turn to the Lord. I pray that You would burden our hearts as well to communicate as well. Father, I pray that there would be great victory today. Victory over guilt, victory over fear, victory over the flesh. Whatever it is that hinders Jesus from being thoroughly pleased with us, would you please remove that and replace it with a disposition, intentions, that will magnify Him and satisfy Him. Would you do that in these moments? We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And when we do, we want to ask you to step out from where you are and staff will be here in the front to receive you. Why don't you tell, him, tell that staff member, today is the day I cease resisting Him and I'm opening the city of my life to Christ. Use whatever words you want to use, but come and let them know your need. God's calling some of you to plant yourself at Beach Haven Baptist Church. We want you to come. God's calling you some to ministry or missionary service. Or some of you have come to know the Lord and He's moving you to follow Jesus in baptism. His Word commands it. Would you please do what He's directing you to do and say yes to Him? Quickly stand with me, please. Let me finish my prayer and you can come. Father. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and redeemer in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. You come.